exactly does it mean to share your hotness? We all have our own unique spark. We are burning out of control like a wildfire, attracting attention, but is it the right kind of attention? All around us are people who are campfires. They don't get as much attention, but their story, their signature spark, their heat that attracts us close to them, those stories need to be shared. On this podcast, we're sharing their stories. Their stories of resilience, overcoming, how to find joy, happiness, everyday people who found their spark and made their life amazing. Hello and welcome to this episode of Share Your Hotness with your host, Lita Green, and my guest today, Heather Gibson. Now, Heather and I met through networking. And those of you who are like, man, Lita meets a lot of really amazing people through networking. It's true. I do. It's like, it's like for entrepreneurs, I think it's kind of where we meet all our friends, right? Because they get it. They get it. They get that we're like trying to do the thing and our time needs to be efficient and smart. And so you need, you know, able to refer people you trust and like, you know, and, um, you, we have done a live together before, um, about cat care, which is, which is fun. Cause I haven't done too many lives with friends. So you've, you've earned one of those spots, you know, and, um, but do you remember what networking group we met at? I think it was, um, women of Utah or something like that. It's okay. been a while. Yeah. It's been, it's been a while, but we've been friends for a while and I love cats and you love cats and dogs, which I don't understand how you can like both. You know? <laughs> it's a tricky thing. <laughs> I just, I just have, I feel like it's like, you know, how people have to be loyal to their team sport. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. what I'm doing. I'm just being silly. It's okay. People, you can love your cats and your dogs. But when I see people with a cute dog, I go, that's really cute for a dog. Like it's my, it's like my little joke. I think I'm hilarious, you know? <laughs> Um, and we are going to talk about love today. So why don't you introduce yourself and go into the topic for today, our conversation? Sure. So like you said, my name is Heather Gibson. I am the mother of seven children, four of whom were adopted from foster care. And so I have just been doing, I don't know, a lot of work with some special needs kids and figuring things out. And I realized how much it's helped my love grow my love for my children. Obviously I absolutely love them, but also my love for everyone, you know, with the different circumstances they might be in. So I feel like my journey through this process of being a foster parent and then an adoptive parent has really made me more tolerant and open uh, and understanding of everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so how, um, foster care is something that I find very fascinating because we're, we're, you already had children in the home when you chose to bring in foster care kids. And I know that that's something that people typically are like, well, I can't do that because what about these kids? So confront that debate that for a minute, that misconception that you, it's not safe to do when you have other kids. It's definitely tricky. Um, I think you do have to be careful. Uh, We always fostered younger than our youngest. That was kind of our rule. Mm -hmm. And foster care has changed a whole bunch. I mean, I, we've fostered for over 10 years, but this was like, I don't know. Let's see. My, my youngest is now 15 and we got her when she was two. So it's been about 13 years since we've fostered and um, adopted legally yours now. Yes. Yes. So she's legally adopted. We have four legally adopted kids from foster care. And back when we started, it was like, you got the call and DCFS was more or less, and this is DCFS is division of child and family services, but it was kind of like, we just picked up this child. We are not sure what's going on. Do you want them? And now they do a lot more with kind of vetting a little bit more and figuring out what's going on before uh, they put children in home. Sometimes they'll keep them for a few nights in a, a temporary home. So, so finding out what's sure... going on with the kid. Yeah. And are they vetting the family stronger than they used to? 
Well, it's pretty difficult, honestly, to vet a family that's in crisis. Um, no, I mean a family that they place. Oh, oh, yes. The foster families, we had to do, God, it's been a long time, but I think it was something like 35 hours of classes. We had to do home visits. We had to do an evaluation with the social worker um, covering everything. So there was quite a bit of stuff we had to go through in order to become foster parents. And so I think it's really smart the way they've kind of made the shift and they're placing kids in homes with, you know, the foster parents that have the strengths that those children need. Mm, so I like I, that. Yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> just, do you want a kid? Yeah, I want a kid, but do you have the strengths to help that child through what they're dealing with? Right. And it's still a little bit of a guessing game. I mean, you're not going to know exactly where a child is two days after, you know, you've had them two days, but they, they are able to gather a little bit more information by talking to family members sometimes and other, other people that are involved in the children's lives, which makes placements a lot more secure and a lot more thought out. So Secure meaning that they're going to it's going to be a successful placement that this child's not going to be bounced around as much. Right. Cause if you put a child in that some kind of an issue that just will not really work well with the family. Um, for example, let's say someone is, you're getting a school age child, but the child you find out is like two grades behind and they're going to need lots of trips to tutors or whatever. And then you have two fairly busy, you know, working parents then that may not be the best home. And so by right. knowing a little bit in advance, they can What's better the place What's the flexibility children? of the parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, that's right. good to know because I, um, I, I kind of fostered a kid and I hate to say it like that because it sounds like I'm taking on, I did more than I did, but um, I realized that they were being molested mm-hmm. was the one that basically called in the police. I, I, at first I kidnapped them. And then called the police on myself, you know, to be like, I, the parent is asking for these children back. I am not giving them back. And this is why the police were at our home very quickly. I had, um, you know, neighborhood ecclesiastical support there so that, you know, maybe like kind of in a test of my character, you know, because I had not done any home visits yet. Right. That, that this happened when the young lady was six and she's now um, 16. So she's been in my life for 10 years and I'm auntie, you know, but they haven't been in my home. Initially, they were in my home uh, 24 hours for a handful of months. And then it was like two and a half years. That I was kind of at a 50-50 split with the grandparents. And then they ended up moving to Nevada, which was not a good fit. Ended up being molested again. And now they're back and I'm in like a 70, 30 split. So we do make custody jokes that, you know, they have to share custody with me, but I have no legal rights to these children. I'm not a foster parent. I can't, um, you know, I'm not a legal guardian, but, um, the, the young lady's still in my life and, and I'm her auntie, you know, but people need, so I'd be an excellent foster parent to somebody who'd been sexually molested, but not an excellent foster care parent to somebody who needed to be driven places a lot because I am a working mom. So that's really cool. They're betting that more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's just smart for everybody. I think everybody's learning more as we grow and getting a little bit better. And, uh, just trying so to do things. Two of my nieces were put in foster care, which is one of the reasons that I kind of have a soft space for it. Um, my, my sibling was beating them you know, lots of, you know, I, I do not argue that they were taken, mm-hmm. but what was really sad is they were taken into a home that the, the foster mother said to my oldest niece, I'm only taking you because I wanted your younger sister. Cause she's cute. And I didn't want you. That's horrible. It is horrible. And come to find out this lady kind of collected foster kids and went out of her way to collect ethnic looking foster kids because it made her look, you know, like a good person, Mm. but was what I would feel is emotionally abusive to those children. 
you know, so, so it made me wonder what that. kind of vetting was happening. Um, and this would have been uh, almost 20 years ago, you know, maybe, maybe uh, 17 years ago. But anyway, about 17 years ago that this all happened and we knew as a family, it was not a good fit, but we had no legal rights because of the termination of my brother's legal rights. So we didn't get to voice, we're not okay with this placement, you know, and I didn't live in state. And so I was not eligible to take these children. That's really interesting. I don't know. I'm just thinking about it based off my experience and I mean, obviously I started about 23, 24 years ago and did it for a little over 10 years, but we sent children from Utah to New York to be with um, some a maternal aunt. And so it feels like most of the time, at least while I was a foster parent, they will go through every relative they can find and try and get you know, allow them yeah. to stay in the family. Because they, they told me I had to lo- live in Utah. My husband was in the military. Mm. So I did not have a choice of where I where could you lived. And yeah. I would have to have a lot of money to, but also my family is not a fan of me. So there was not an advocation in the family that yes. Um, I think people as terrible as it is were, Oh, um, wanted to demonize the children to not look bad. Mm. And it was easier to say, oh, we're just going to have to write them off because, you know, and lies were made up that my, my niece had molested people, you know, and she was a child. So even if she had, she should have been in care, but she had never done anything like that. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. It's just really stories like that. Yeah. The good news is they, um, my one niece in particular is kicking awesome at life. She has really made her life amazing and I'm super proud of her. And she's one of my favorite humans. She's amazing. You know, the other yeah. one I'm not as close to, um, and I don't begrudge that, you know, but so I don't know her as well, but I, by all accounts, it looks like she's living a good life, you know, that she's successfully not, you know, not following in the, the path of her her parental units. <laughs> hmm. That's really yeah. what we hope for. Right. You know, right. There's even kind of a shift. From, yeah. Even if we come from good families, we need to be able to question what is good and what we yes. keep. Right. For sure. So what led you to decide to do this, to do foster care? So my husband was going to school and he wanted to go to graduate school as a marriage and family therapist. And we had been married, oh, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half. And he needed something to help his resume look a little bit better before we left. And he found this job in a place that does therapy and also had a respite crisis nursery. So What that meant is that during therapy hours, parents could bring the kids and go to therapy while they were down in the nursery, as -hmm. well as um, we also had child services call and say, hey, we just picked up this child running in the road, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, can we bring him over? And that was a way for them to kind of get a little time um, before placing. And every state does it different. So we fostered in Utah and we fostered in California and our experiences were different just because they handle things differently. But anyway, we, why we were in Utah. What are some of those differences? Um, so in, it, at least why we were doing this, and this is, I mean, we're talking right. about almost a decade ago. That feels right. really old to say, but um, <laughs> I know I'm getting old. I, no, I uh, laugh because I referred to something the other day in 40 years ago. And I'm like, dang it. Yeah. <laughs> So they had it kind of um, maybe commercialized is the wrong word, but there were foster agencies and most people went through a foster agency. So we had a foster agency caseworker and then we had a county caseworker. And so we were kind of getting support from both people. Um, Whereas in Utah, they have a, a resource family consultant is what they call it but you get it right from the state. There are some organizations that, that do the placements also in Utah like that, but 
it's usually for the kids that are a little bit harder to place and that need a little bit more time and attention and have more skilled foster parents. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it, it was different, just kind of the, the different ways the States handled things. They have different rules about, uh, whether or not you qualify for insurance for the kids automatically after they are adopted. Um, you know, so there's some different things that kind of go into their rules and what you're required to do as a foster parent. But, uh, anyway, my husband was getting ready to go to graduate school. We applied to be the overnight workers at this respite crisis nursery. And so while we were there, we saw kids coming in that were needing foster placements. And there were a lot of times they'd stay for a little bit longer if it was a tougher placement or whatever. And we just kept saying, God, we would love to take these kids for longer. Um, We had a toddler at the time. My oldest was around one years old. And so we decided your one-year-old, you were doing this respite at overnight. So where was your other kid coming with you and being there overnight? Okay. So we actually lived on property. So we had a little apartment on the side and, um, you know, I think we started at like five o'clock at night and then we were on until eight the next morning. Uh So we would help get the kids to bed. We'd play with them for a while. We'd do our bedtime routine with dinner stories and dinner and, um, you know, a bath if they'd been there a little bit and they needed a bath. And so we just kind of had that experience where we fell in love with some of these kids and thought, you know, when, when we're done working here, we would love to get signed up and licensed. And so when we moved to California, that's where my husband went to graduate school. He has a PhD in marriage and family therapy. Uh, We started the process and it is a little, you know, depending on how quick you can get through the classes, it's probably a three to four month process. And so we started that. Um, I was pregnant. Uh, we had my my daughter, who's our second child. And after she was a little bit older, I think we started about when she was about seven months old. Um, so we waited a little bit. And we went a little slower. Uh, we started fostering and we still had the rule, you know, younger than our youngest. Um, and so we got a little girl that was just her age. Um, she stayed with us for about eight to nine months. And it was tricky because when, when she came, they felt like, you know, mom was having some serious issues. This was the second time the child had been in placement. She'd already gone back to the mom once. And so they didn't, you know, it was kind of a like, Hey, we're really not sure what's going to happen here. Would you guys be open to adopting her if she came up for adoption? And so of course, you know, it was that if, And they were just trying to make a good placement, but in your mind, you kind of fall in love with the, with the little girl. You love what you serve and you were serving the little one. Yeah. And I've always had really big compassion for the birth parents. I, I know that sometimes they were just, they never really were set up to succeed because of the family that they grew up in and how early they were exposed to drugs and different things. So I had a lot of compassion for the mom, but it was very hard to have her leave. And so we continued to foster after she left. We had several children. All of them uh, went back to family in some way until we got to our son, Zion, and we adopted him. I don't know if I could do that. It is tricky. I I feel like we got through it. Is that your code word for heartbreaking? (laughs) Yes, it's, it is, it is heartbreaking. Um, the way you're I not got, always sending them back to what you could conceivably feel is secure. It's true. Safe for true. them. And you yeah. hope it is, but the, <sighs> the system's gotten a lot better where if at all possible, they'll send the kids back to you if they come which back is, into care. Which but is, it's, it's good that I I'm, I'm again, if, like you say, you have empathy for the birth parents you want children to, you want parents and kids to be together, but you also want them to be treated in a safe manner. And if somebody does not know how to take care of themselves in a safe manner, how are they going to do that for their kid? You know, yes. so really, really, exactly. really tricky. It is, it's, it is heartbreaking. And the truth is we kind of got through it by looking at what we were able to serve with them. So 
you know, one, we, we found that they had a, a heart murmur and we were able to get that diagnosed and get that on their records so that that could be taken care of. And then with one, there was a lot of dental work that needed to be done. And right. so we always just tried to look at how we were able to serve and move that child forward. Um, so we, we had one child from California that we adopted and then Zion. I had, yes, Zion. And then when we were done with foster care, we moved to back to you when we were done with foster care, when we were done with, um, grad, pro, grad school, grad program. Yep. We moved back to Utah, um, which is where my family is and his family. And so, uh, we started fostering again in Utah and ended up adopting another son. And then we had two, uh, siblings that we adopted as our cabooses. And, um, it's been awesome. It's been hard. It's been. Yeah. So the two, the last two were siblings, meaning not siblings because they're in your family, but siblings because they, they were like my, like my nieces that they wanted to keep them together. Yeah. Birth siblings. And they definitely try and keep families together as much as they can now. I think they're learning all the research is showing that they're better off as much as they can stay with family, that that's better for them. Mm -hmm. So I know we're a secondary choice and I think that's important that they really try and do what's best for the child. Um, but it, I'm happy that we could be there for our children. And we fostered a lot more than we adopted. We, we pro I think we counted, we had 16 children for some wow. length of time in our care. And then four of them came up for adoption and we adopted them. So those so. other 12 were able to be reunited with their birth family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Keep in touch with them. Do you know how they're doing? No. So anyone that we haven't adopted, we really aren't allowed to kind of keep in touch. Wow. I had, a, I had a social worker early on that say it's kind of hard on the child mm -hmm. because you know, the they're in I situation. Had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure whether that's accurate or not. I would have loved to be a support for the mom going forward, but sometimes it's just really hard. It, if they went back to the birth mom, that can be a hard situation for them to be in knowing that the kids really love us too. You know, there's kind of this conflict of some people feel like uh, that they love us more than them when it's really not that it's just that we've been so a safe is place it really for a about while. The feelings of the adults or the feelings of the children. Cause I think all the people you can have in a child's life that can love them with and let's be really clear, unselfishness is a clear uh, uh, delineator of actual love. You know, we we use selfishness a lot as a way to say, I love you, but it's not. It's the way I want to possess you. I want to control you, you know, but yeah. um, we use that word a lot when it's really a selfish act. Yeah. So I, I honestly am not an expert in that area. I haven't, you know, I couldn't say what the research plays out in that, but I will say that it, I can imagine it would be really hard for a mom to work super hard to get a child back and then to get the child back and have them always asking about the foster family, you know, crying for the foster family. So I can see how that would play into issues and it, it may be hard for the child to go back and forth in any way. Yeah, I just, in an ideal world, everybody could have as many kids as they wanted to have and would love them with all that they have. Yeah, I agree. And I yeah. do think it takes a village to raise any child. And, um, you know, one of our adopted children ended up leaving our home for a while and going into kind of more of a structured home, uh, situation for a while. And, uh, the woman that took him, like, I just love her. I am so grateful for the help she gave us during that time. It just wasn't safe for all of our kids in the home to keep him at our house. And yeah. so to be able to have someone else love and raise him uh, for a period of his life. And so he has multiple moms and I yeah. think that's awesome. And we well, my, navigated that well. My son, who's now 20, he is, um, you know, he didn't have a, a troubled youth or whatever. Right. I mean, I like to think his parents are pretty stable, but um <laughs> We, there are two women in particular that 
are have had a key part in helping him become who he is. And so the big joke in our family is I'd say, well, who's your favorite mom? And he go, Taryn, you know, who's your favorite <laughs> mom? Pam. By the way, my name is not Taryn or Pam, right? But these right. are women that at every sacred sacred event in his life, I'm making sure they're there. At his wedding, um, Pam is going to be filling what would be traditionally the grandmother role. Um, because she has been that consistency in his life where his grandparents were were not, you know. So I'm incredibly thankful for these women that helped my my kid who didn't come from a difficult situation other than his mom talks too much, you know, <laughs> but you know, uh, we, we kids do need additional people. And, uh, it, I just think for me, I guess with my miscarriages, it just feels like if I were fostering a kid and then I had to give them back, it would feel like a miscarriage to me. So I, there's a high level of, um, you know, well done to love knowing you won't get to keep them, <laughs> which I guess is parenting, right? Dang it. They move out. It's so crazy. And the truth is all of us have our strengths. And I've had a lot of people over the years say like, oh, you know, what you did was amazing. And the truth is, I feel like it played to the gifts that God already gave me. Like it was natural for me to do that. And we need people that do all kinds of things to make the world run. So if it's not someone's calling to be a foster mom, it may be to be, you know, that second mom, like you were talking about your son, God. And the other thing I think too, is that as women, we tend to shame ourselves so much for things that our kids go through. Like we blame ourselves for everything. And so we've had issues with our biological kids, with our adopted kids and you Sometimes mean, kids you mean just humans, go through you mean yes. have their own experiences that they need to go through? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're standing up on my soapbox here, Heather, because <laughs> uh, whenever people say to me and people can go check this when they go, oh, your kids are so amazing. I say, I'm thankful I have kids that listened. Yeah. Because, because they are listeners, they were able to take the cumulative wisdom that my husband and I have and assess if that was something they would like to implement. And that is something that they just came with. I did not create that. But I feel really strongly about this because my greatest obstacle in becoming the person I am was overcoming the home I came from. And so do my parents, who I love, get credit for how I turned out when they were the obstacle I had to overcome? I, but in or the only way that I could learn to love them and respect the good that they gave me is by recognizing that I was given an obedient heart. And so for some reason, the messages of faith and eternal love and divine whispered to me loud enough that I was able to make choices that fell in line with that. But I was not taught those things in the home that I came from. And I think that's the other reason that foster care always really kind of connects with me is if I'd been hit instead of yelled at, I would be in foster care. You know, that if there were marks that could have been seen, my home would not have passed the test to get me back. And my brother was actually removed from the state for, um, for beating the crap out of me when he was high on drugs. And Mm -hmm. I remember going and seeing the home that he was in and feeling very jealous because it was a more structured home, as you put it, but it had food three times a day. Can you believe that food? I know like (laughs) what? Oh, it's so sad. Yeah. There's so many children that don't have the basics. So I say that good parents give their kids a broader scope of choices, more easily accessible to them. Bad parents take away choices. And if you think about the kind of parent that God is, he's like, here's all your choices. I'd like you to pick some of these. I'd like you to narrow it down, but they're going to let them make all the choices. Right. And when you think about the forces of evil, those are the ones that say, oh, you can't choose that. You're not good enough. Oh, you can't choose that. You're not smart enough. 
you're not good enough for that, right? So evil constricts and good expands. And so if you're a good parent, you're expanding what your kids have the choices to pick from. And if you're not on the whole, you know, I'm not going to say evil because I don't think, I think evil is overly used and seldom really met, just maybe weak in parenting or weak in your decision-making, right? Then you're, you're taking choices away because a kid can't choose to not hit if the only thing they've ever seen is hitting. Right. You know, so. It's tricky. And I just think, I think with all that's going on, the best thing we can do is love and try and be careful not to judge. Judging hardly ever helps anybody, you know, to change. Right. Right. And just uh, doing what we can to understand and help people the best we can. And I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of have to feel like there's a higher power when you're working in that area and feel like, okay, I've done all I can. I'm turning this over. So, yep. I, uh, I have encounters in grocery stores and stores all the time with people. And this lady, she said to me, she goes, what about those transgenders? You know, just kind of under her breath. And I was like, wow. Okay. And I, and she was, you know, had revealed to me that she was religious, you know, and I, I'm religious as well. And so maybe that's why she felt like she could. And I said, you know, here's the question. When we put that kind of onto people, that's, isn't that judgment? And she was like, yeah. And I said, and God asked us to do what? And she's like, love. And I was like, okay. So when we do this to people, is that inviting them to Christ or pushing them away from Christ? And she was like, that hit her hard enough that she grabbed my arm. Because I don't think she had realized that correlation. Doesn't mean you have to agree or condone, but you know, somebody murders, we still are commanded to love them. And there's nobody that's going to agree that murder is an awesome idea. Right? Love. We don't know if the only choice they were ever given was violence. And that's the only thing they've ever witnessed. And then one day murdered someone because they, you know, they didn't might've been, you know what I mean? Like, we just don't know where they came from. We don't know what their cumulative life experiences are. We don't know what their brain chemistry is. We don't know. But if yeah. loving, then there's an invitation. I feel like Christ is so much more loving than separating, you know? I, I know a lot of people that are transgender or, you know, have different sexual orientation and the truth is they're amazing people. So why wouldn't I love them? Why wouldn't I even if you agreed or didn't agree, which is not the point, I would suspect a lot of people don't agree with my lifestyle. Mine too. (laughs) Right. You know, there's a lot of people who probably would be like, that's a weird way to live. You know what I mean? Um, but this is the life that I have chosen. Yeah. And I get to choose that life. And the same laws that allow them to choose their lifestyle allow me to choose mine. The problem in history shows us when we try to force one lifestyle on the other. Yeah. So oddly enough, um, it's funny that we got to this topic because as a breeder, there's a lot of people. Now, a breeder, breed. not a human breeder. Let's let's clarify Correct. that. People who don't know you. <laughs> yes. So I breed cats and dogs. Um, I noticed the amazing effects they had on my children when we were foster parents, and so I went in with the intent to create amazing emotional support therapy and service dogs. But you would not believe the amount of hate I received because. I breed cats and dogs. And so you're right. There's nobody will ever be happy with everything you do. And you'll always have people that feel like what you're doing is wrong or um, I don't know, whatever they have decided. So you kind of have to just be confident in yourself and say, I feel like this is my purpose. This is my mission. This is who I am. And I'm going forward with it. And I understand some people aren't going to like it. Right. And 
one of the things that I tell people when they bring this up to me deeper than the conversation I had with this lady in the aisles of the store um, is that when you're truly confident who you are, you don't need the validation of other people. That that is actually neediness or disempowering to expect other people to agree with you before you can feel good or validated. And that is my issue with what's happening in society. They're saying to, um, okay, like uh, suicide awareness. Yes, we should never be mean to people. That would be in an ideal world, no teenage kid would ever say something poopy to another teenage kid. That, That would be ideal. And when, heaven forbid, one of those children in a school dies by suicide, the message they send to the kids is, we could have been kinder. Now, that that could be true, but it's putting responsibility on the actions or the mental health struggle or the demons that that individual fought that ended their life. Not the outside influences, because you could take apples to, you know, apples to oranges and have put one kid in one situation that would lead to suicide and another kid in the same exact situation that wouldn't lead to suicide. That would be the making of them. So whenever we're saying the responsibility for someone's actions is outside of them, we are now making that person objectified. Does that make sense? You bring up all the tough, tough, tough topics, don't you, Lita? <laughs> I'm not trying to. I just, yeah. I guess I, I just am a deep thinker, you know, but yeah. um, I do think that this is the challenge of our time as religious or Christian people to ask ourselves if we can agree or not agree. I'm not going to get into that because that's a personal thing, but to love, even if we disagree. Yeah. And suicide is a topic that I'm very passionate about too. My oldest brother committed suicide when I was a senior in high school, serious mental health demons, um, that were involved with that. And, um, you know, some of my own kids have struggled with it. And so I feel like, and I think let's be honest, almost every kid now, because social media, the pressures, the fact that it never looks like life gets better because adults are quibbling online with each other all the time. And there's a war over here and the natural disaster here and the world's all going to end. I mean, like, Seriously, if a kid doesn't have anxiety, they are not paying attention. It's crazy. Just the and then we threw a pandemic happened. On. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Oh, the youth today—it's so tricky. Um, I am a, a huge component, uh, component, not component, advocate for being kind. That's one of my my main things. I wear shirts like this, wildly grateful, and be kind. Yes. I I really pay attention to what I put on the clothing I wear because I want to send happy messages out. But I think you're right. Sometimes some people take it the opposite way and there's so much shame and guilt already so much um, questioning about how much they could have changed or done. And I always think no matter what happens in life, it's good to, to do a little self-evaluation, right? We have to be really careful how we talk to people that are around people that are struggling with mental health illness and other things. Um, I well, know I, is, yeah, I think a lot of the shifting blame is easier to do because it takes personal responsibility away, but it, it creates victimhood. And I mean, I wrote a whole entire book on how to not be a victim referring to sexual abuse and a whole other book on how to be confident. So I might have thought deeply about these subjects, right? Mm-hmm. But yep. When we take power away from an individual, we are making it where they do not get to affect their future. And that creates a permanent victim class. And one thing that societies have always needed to survive is people who will do what they are told. You know, um, we used to use slavery and and this is not just the American South. It is all of the world has used slavery as a way to gain economic power. You know, colonialism was just slavery of a whole entire continent, right? Or country. And we still need people who will just do what they're told, go to work, do what they're told. And all of these cultural wars, as I see it, is simply a way to divide people, to get people that will just do what they're told because they're afraid of putting their head up. They're afraid of, you know, not 
fitting in with community, that kind of thing. But as long as you can make someone feel that they do not have the ability to affect their future, they will not put their head up. And so That's if it, being a victim of your skin tone, being a victim of your sex, being a victim of being in the LGBT community, it's, these are individuals like you talked about that are loving and sweet and amazing. Why wouldn't you love them? But they are being used as pawns, just like we women were used as pawns to get what society wants, the next step of more power. You know, it's, it's pretty crazy and it's super sad. And I've, I feel like there's so many intricate details that for me, uh, it's more of like a, I am going to live my best life. I'm going to be as kind as I can. I'm going to try and not be a victim myself and put myself out there as having power over my life, try and teach all that come around me some of those same lessons, empower them. Well, you're being intentional, just like something as simple as how you dress, being intentional to be a kind person. But I also know if somebody messed with your kids, you know, legally yours or foster care yours, you know how to be unkind. Oh, I kind of have, you know how to be like bear come out. Yeah. Yeah. A little. Yeah. And sometimes (laughs) kindness is, is uh, not saying the nicest thing, but it's the thing that's the most loving. Yeah. Sometimes. And I'm a big advocate for kindness too, but kindness could, the idea of kindness, if it's shifting responsibility away, that's where it starts to get, as you would say, tricky. I wouldn't call that kindness all the time. So, but people do, you know what I'm yeah, saying? You're right. You know, yeah. people do, but you know, I, I'm just differentiating that for the listener. Right. There's, there was a book I was reading. I think it was crucial conversations. Ah, that's on my list. I think I might even have it here. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was in that book where they said being direct is kind being fully honest is kind when you skirt around the issues, when you sugarcoat it and you don't really give them the tools you need, then that's really not kindness. And for example, you know, I had a son who was having trouble showing up at work on time and, you know, working like he should at his job. And when something like that happens and the boss kind of sugarcoats it or doesn't really address it with him, the truth is it doesn't help change his behavior. And so he has that problem, you know, at the next job and the next job. Mom, my boss doesn't have a problem with this. Why do you have a problem with it? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the, the feedback I was getting. And then, um, he actually got feedback from somebody else. So he was applying somewhere else. And he said, well, I called your last boss and he said, you were lazy. You didn't show up on time. You took too long of breaks. Why would I hire you? And he was kind of floored because he didn't think he'd been doing anything wrong at the, you know, the last job. And so in that situation, even though it's a hard conversation, it would have been the kind thing to do to tell but it's, him while he was in the job. But that shows that they saw the problem. The boss saw the problem, but wasn't honest enough and kind enough to deliver it to his face. It had to come through a third party would have been so much easier for him to hear it from the person who saw the problem in the first place. Yeah. And I think uh, some, at least I am sometimes guilty of trying to sugarcoat it because it's so uncomfortable to have those hard conversations sometimes, but that's really kindness. That is kindness. And when you're sugarcoating it, it's, it's not. So I totally agree with you in that. I call it standing naked. That the more you love someone and I'm being a little, a little risque, how I say this, (laughs) but the more you love someone, the more honest you are with them the more naked you're willing to be with them. So my husband, I am the most honest with. And he's the most honest with me because we will stand naked with each other, right? That's We just stand by each other. We don't do anything else for anyone listening. That's all we do, you know? And then, you know, with my kids in my home, you know, they they might see me, um, you know, walking around a bathrobe. So there's, you know, more honesty that can happen with my, my kids but they're never going to see me fully naked, you know? So with our children, I'm not going to go up to a two-year-old and say, so when mommy and daddy close the door, right? There are things that that kid is not ready to hear. Right. You know, but as they get older and older, not that we do nakedness, but I'm using it as an analogy. 
that I can be more and more honest with my kid about how the world and life works. And yet the further I get away from someone, sometimes when somebody on the internet, like you're the people who get mad about you breeding, like if we get all wrapped up in the fact that they're angry with us, we'd be shut down. Right? So I'm not going to take the time to explain and delineate or to, you know, to be fully honest with that person because they're not that close to me. But the closer you get to me, I hope that the honesty that I have in my relationship with myself, with my husband, with my children radiates out in a pure tone of what it is. But I can't take the time to be fully naked in front of everyone. See how well, it just doesn't work kind of either. Yeah, yeah. It, do, it doesn't. It doesn't work. But it mm-hmm. kind of gives me some grace in the sense of I'm not going to go up to the lady at the grocery store who is um, because I I don't know her situation, who's maybe being grumpy at her kid. I might walk by being bold and say something like, oh, "We all have hard days." you know, I hope, I hope, you know, give her a little love, right? Like that's me right. being bold, but I'm not going to go up to her and be like, you keep abusing your kid. And cause I don't know, I don't know the right. whole scenario. And I'm not proud to say that I did say that once to a lady because I just had a miscarriage and mm-hmm. she was yanking on her two-year-old's arm. And it just made me so mad because I'm like, if I had a two-year-old, I would not be doing that. And I went up and said that to her. And I'm sure that did not help her at all to become a better mother, (laughs) you know? So it wasn't, it was honesty too far. Right. But yeah, for sure. Right. I mean, like it was, it was honest. I'm I'm just telling you the truth, (laughs) but I didn't have the trust with her, the relationship with her to deliver that in a way that she could go, Oh, I can alter. I can improve. That's a great point. You really have to evaluate the situation and realize do I have the ability to to help or is this not going to help? And how do I present it in a way that comes off as, Hey, I would love to help you. Here's what I'm seeing. I have little toys in my purse, Um, you know, like little dollar tree toys and things like that. So when a kid is, you know, obviously mom's maxed, I go up and I'm like, distract the kid with a little toy and give it to the mom, you know, and just kind of help shift the focus. And a lot of times moms have cried in my arms. It's hard. It's hard you know? being a young mom, especially. It is, but kids. you know, they, sometimes they just need like on a plane, the crying baby, instead of sitting there being like, ah, crying baby, you know, I'm like, Hey, I'm not lactating. You want me to hold your baby? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's I'm happy to play needed. with her. Yeah. And by yeah. the way, when you do that, the airline typically will bring you whatever first class is getting. Oh, just well then. I would say probably 60% of the time that I take the crying baby, I get perked. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's a so, nice little karma coming back to you, huh? <laughs> yeah. I'm, and I mean, I'm heavily motivated by food, so that totally works. But, you know, kindness with that, that measure of truth, it's a very interesting conversation to have with yourself because you're the only one who can really gauge it, right? But- um exactly. Sometimes the kindest thing we can do for people who are toxic is take their kid away, make them learn to get better, right? Or take the toy away. And if you happen to be the toy, take the toy away, right? Mm -hmm. You know, but it seems so unkind and seems so brutal. And in a perfect world, all children will be safe. I know someday we can hope, you know, that we're it's going to happen one day. Cause I've better. already asked how I'm religious. So one day it's, it's <laughs> going to be amazing. Yeah. I, I look forward to that for sure. And in the meantime, you learn how to have those crucial conversations to be honest in ways that are helpful and then just be as kind as you can. I think it is the mom of a, of children with what I call invisible disabilities where it's not easily seen how they struggle. It's not easily seen um, all the pain that they go through. And it's so easy to think, oh, they have it all together. You know, look, they're, they're great functioning individuals when behind the scenes, they're actually really struggling. And I would say there was a quote by someone that said, 
something like if you imagine people are going through a really hard time, you're right 60% of the time or something like that. Or 90. (laughs) 90, I know. So I I try and give everyone tons of grace. And if someone's, you know, bashing me on social media, usually the kindest thing I can do is just unfollow them and not even respond. Right. Um, Because they're not going to listen to me, you know? So there's the times where you unfollow, there's the times where you are honoring yourself by setting up boundaries and saying, Hey, I'm sorry, you can't treat me like that. It's not yep. okay. And that's I like that one. super kind, you know? Yeah, I, I like that one because it teaches you to keep your head up, mm-hmm. you know, just being like, yeah, your opinion of me is not the discussion we're having. Right. You know, and whether it's family or it's friends or it's a coworker or your boss or just some random person on the internet, you know, right. Boundaries um, are crucial for you and for them. It's the kind thing to do. And, but I do think stating that there is a problem. I think we too often have been guilty of, um, you know, just going along to get along. And I think we've gotten into a point to our society where, if we really want to make sure that hate is not being continued for any party, for any group, those of us that can say, look, I, I mean, I personally believe that God put us all in the right body. However, it is not for me to judge what other things you're dealing with. And so I'm willing to just let this be between you and God. I'm willing to do that. That's totally fine. I'm not willing for you to teach my children about heterosexual sex or gay sex or any other kind of sex. There's a boundary for me. And so I think we have to be able to be like, okay, I may not agree with you. And I'm totally okay that you don't agree with me. They're, they're not going to agree with all of my religious beliefs. And that's totally fine. You know, but as adults, we get to have our separate thing, but we do have to look and strive to respect each other. Cause that is a big component to kindness. Even if you don't understand to try to dig in and learn about them. So you can have compassion. You can have empathy. You can have respect for this kind, beautiful people that is before you, right? Even if you're not thinking all the same things. But if we really truly want that to all, we want everyone to feel included and loved in our society. Those of us that have the capacity for that kind of empathy or mental gymnastics or whatever you want to call it, need to be able to speak out and say, I may not agree but you do not get to persecute them. Right. And you don't get to persecute me. Right. And if, if we are standing up and saying, this is not okay, people should not be afraid to walk down the street. You know, somebody, you know, yelling mean things at you. I'm not okay with that. And if we just silently walk by, then we're saying we condone it. You know, if it's it's a black person, if it's a transgender person, if it's a religious person that's being persecuted, we have to be able to go and say, just like we teach our kids at school, hey, that's not cool. Right, right. And I think, it, I don't know, sometimes we're so morally confused, we forget we can agree to disagree and respect each other and have our boundaries and uh, really just work on helping each other where it's appropriate. So. Well, it forces people, um, you know, when religious communities are isolated, they become extreme. And so when people are like, see, we were justified in not being nice to people that are transgender because look how extreme they're getting. I'm like, is that because we're forcing them in a corner, you know, where they feel like they don't have the right to exist. Tell me if they, if you were not isolated in your beliefs, if you would not respond the same. It's really true. I think every human, no matter where they're at, no matter what they've done deserves to be respected in the situation they're in. And that may be really hard. Like I'm sure if when I hear about someone hurting my kids, I do want to like get in the middle of it and get them away and, you know, do whatever I need to get it to stop. But the truth is we still have to respect the person that's hurting. Um, Not what's the right word, not enabling them, but mm-hmm. realizing that when we approach them and how we react around them, we still have to do it with the respect that they are a human being, that they have a background we don't know about. Mm-hmm. And so we and they have feelings. We, and we can yeah. do it 
in a very, what's the right word? A very strong, a very um, abrupt way if we need to. Obviously with kids, we're not going to let someone else hurt them or other people, but it's okay to be abrupt, but still be as respectful as you can be. And I think that's where it's the hardest is when it's someone that you feel like, you know, for example, you brought up a murderer, you know, uh, so some of my, one of my kids' parents, um, is currently incarcerated for murder and it's a hard thing, you know, it's, and yet knowing it, the background behind the story and what happened, I can still have respect for him as a person and respect for what he's done right in his life. Right. And for the fact that he is a valuable person without agreeing with what he did and doing whatever I need to do to protect other people around him. You know, and to me, that's like you were saying, you know, Christ is way more loving. Christ has the capacity, God, what, you know, I'm going to let the listener fill in the blank for what they define as deity. For me, it's Jesus Christ, heavenly father, heavenly mother. Right. But that, that, energy, that source of truth has a much greater capacity for love than we human brain can even comprehend. And what you just said about the murderer is you're still protecting the child, how the child feels. There has to be boundaries. There's going to be certain amounts of exposure. But when you learn about anyone's story, I think 99% of those stories We have like Hitler's one of those that we have not been able to learn about and have compassion for because of what he did. And Goebbels, you know, it's just so hideous, right? Um, Mao's China. You have a hard time having compassion for those individuals. Leave it to God. But almost anyone, you learn more about their story and you're like, oh, you, you can empathize or understand where they ended up, where they ended up. But yeah. by learning those stories and finding out what the lessons are, that's where wisdom comes from. And if we divide ourselves as a society, we are cutting off the wisdom that we could learn from the transgender community, from the religious community, from the black community. The more divided we get, the more dumb we get. It's crazy. We don't even need to divide it up like that. I feel like no matter what stereotype we have what community we belong to it's almost like it doesn't matter anymore everyone seems to be turning against each other it never did we are all children of god period and even if you don't believe in god if you boil us down to what we're worth just in the minerals and proteins or whatever in our body that there's like i heard one place it was we are worth like one hundred and sixty four thousand dollars each you know Mm -hmm. like the, the raw materials but the point is no matter what my orientation, my race, my beliefs, I'm worth the same. Yeah. I'm worth the yeah. same. Whatever yep. the number is, I'm worth the same. So no if matter you're what you've done or no religion person, are. we are worth the same. Yes. I am not better. I, I am not less than I'm worth the same. Yes. And we have to realize, again, there are so many invisible, invisible disabilities, mental health, all these things that play into it that we have no idea what's going on in the background most of the time. That's why I love that I don't have to worry about that. I am not in charge of judging them. It's not my job to pick any of that. And I am so comfortable with that because I know that I, I think I'd have a really hard time being a judge because they have to make those decisions. But I think it's more like who's safe in society to have out and who's not. Right. And it's really not about are they valuable or not. That's not where it is or should be anywhere. Because I feel like um, yeah, being being a judge would be very difficult. I agree. I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be that person that had to make that call, which is why it's good. It's supposed to be based off of lies, not political influence. I mean laws, excuse me, laws, not political influence. Um so I I think it's really valuable what we've talked about because it, it all goes back to your ability to love yourself, how confidently that you can just stick with, I don't understand everything, but I understand love. And if you love yourself, you can love others. But if you don't 
have that understanding of your basic worth. It's very hard to, to navigate these questions. That's a great summary of our conversation. Way to go, Lita. Well, I was paying attention. <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> so anything you'd like to add for the listener before we sadly have to cut it off? I guess the thing that I wish I could teach to my kids more and that I see with them currently that we're working on again is boundaries are okay. You know, no matter what's going on in your life, it's okay to say, no, I'm not comfortable with this. Even if it's the social norm for everybody else, it's okay to say no. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Absolutely. Well, well said, Heather. Well said. And Heather, thank you for being on this episode of Share Your Hotness. Thanks for having me.